We return this morning to Hebrews chapter 8. Our text is verse 7 through 13. This morning and next Sunday morning at communion, I'd like to begin reading at verse 6. Hebrews 8, beginning at verse 6. But now hath he, capital H, reference to Jesus, God the Son, he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator, capital M, of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their heart And I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Now that this morning we once again confront the reality that the writer prompted by thy spirit, writes of deep things, complex things, things that have a very certain rationale and logic that drive the argument to be made, underscoring the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ again and again and again. And yet that said, we do appreciate that right at this moment of time, There is such a glorious interconnection between the things we're studying in Matthew and the things that we're studying in Hebrews and the opportunity of this Lord's Day that it is absolutely staggering and no no doubt evidential of thy love and care for us as your people. We are thankful. But we do pray that you would help us to grab quickly upon the thrust of the passage 
so that we might make right applications to our own souls and in that sense be well prepared for the week that lies before us. We thank you for this opportunity. We ask your blessing upon the flock. For we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. The impact statement of the verses we've just read is found in verse 8, where God said, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. That's the statement. As we have often told you, there are two New Testament words for new in the scriptures of the New Testament era. The one means new in time, like a newborn baby. The other means new in kind or form. And this is the word modifying the word covenant as declared to be made by God, quoting Jeremiah 31, here at Hebrews 8, 8. A new covenant. Not a new covenant in time, that's at the point of emphasis, though it was new in time, at the point in time in which it was established by the blood of Christ. But new in kind, new in form, This is a covenant with a new form and a new kind in contrast to the old covenant and the old kind. You should remember that when the Lord Jesus celebrated Passover in the upper room with his disciples, he took the cup saying, this is the new covenant, the New Testament in my blood. Jesus thereby revealed to the disciples that what he was about to do next at the cross would indeed be the establishment of the new covenant promised through the ancient prophet Jeremiah. So the quote of Jeremiah 31 in Hebrews 8.8 looks back to the prophecy. It likewise looks back to the establishment of the new covenant at the cross by the blood of Christ and builds, as it were, a logic for living based upon the fact that the Jewish believers of the first century were indeed rightly connected to the New Testament in his blood, not the old covenant based upon the blood of sacrifice, animal blood of sacrifice, but based upon the blood of Christ. You now have the basic theme that we'll work with for a number of weeks upcoming. Hebrews 8, however, contrasts the first and the second covenants, which I would clarify as blood covenants, established by God to demonstrate, verse 6, the more excellent ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ as our great high priest. If you look at that impact statement once again in verse 8, you will see that it plainly says that this new covenant is with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah unified. If you know the history of the Old Testament, 
and the dividing of the nation into two, north and south, Israel proper and Judah, then you know that David and Solomon were the only Israeli kings to rule over a united nation. And yet the prophetic promise is that the coming king of Israel, the Messiah, will indeed in the coming day rule over a united kingdom in Israel. And the way in which Messiah can do that or is able to accomplish that is on the basis of his own blood. That's the basis of the new covenant, as declared in the impact statement of Hebrews 8 and verse 8. Now, there are many applications of this to all of us, to be sure, but nonetheless, it's important for us to be mindful of the fact that the covenants are made with the Jewish people. There are no biblical covenants made with Gentiles or with other nations besides Israel. So when I drive past the church sign at some other church that says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, I think Israel. Even though you are being led to think the United States of America. There is no covenant relationship between God and the United States of America. God's covenant relationship is with Israel. All the covenants are with Israel. Yet, Gentile believers in King Jesus today, like Jewish believers in Jesus, are made one in Christ, and as Paul said it, for through him we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access by one Spirit, the Holy Spirit, Unto the Father. That's a powerful thing to think about. Ephesians 2.18. So in fact the new covenant was made with. And the new covenant was made for the Jewish people. But the blessings of that new covenant. Include believers of every tribe. And tongue. And nation. Thank God. You and I should never confuse Israel with the church. God's eternal program involves both Israel and the church. Today we continue to follow the theme of Christ's superiority by following the logic of contrast between two covenants, the first and the second, or the old covenant and the new as referenced in our text. Now this contrast is so phenomenal as to its significance that in the modern era, we have chosen to identify the two major parts of the Bible by this nomenclature. And so we call Genesis to Malachi old. Testament, Old Covenant. And we call uh, the Christian scriptures New 
covenant. And yet, the truth of the matter is, there aren't just two covenants. There actually are eight biblical covenants to be studied and to known. And all eight covenants point towards the new covenant, which is established in Jesus Christ. Nonetheless, this contrast between the old and the new uh, is uh, represented even in the way in which we, uh, we uh, have applied uh, titles to the aspect of the scriptures. And I don't think it's a bad thing, although for scholarly purposes, we might uh, better call the aspect of uh, Malachi or Genesis to Malachi the Hebrew scriptures. And we might call Matthew to Revelation the, script, the, whole, the, the, the Christian scriptures, Hebrew scriptures, Christian scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament. But ultimately, it doesn't matter what you call it because it's only one book and it's all from God. And so the idea, the fact is, is that our language, even to designate the parts of the Bible, reflects the aspect of the kind of contrast that is being developed here in our text in Hebrews for, of course, first century Jewish people that had embraced faith in Jesus Christ. That said, by looking carefully at verse 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, you begin to see the aspect of a contrast between the old covenant under the law and the new covenant established in the Lord. The old covenant of blood under the law and the new covenant of blood in the Lord as a contrast that yields phenomenal blessing upon consideration. And part of that consideration has to do with the fact that the new covenant has a particular sense of characterization in the scripture that is glorious to follow. And we begin this morning, that which will continue uh, even next week at the communion hour, but we, could t- we begin this morning to think about the uniqueness of the stated characteristics of the new covenant and the better ministry of Christ based upon better promises, verse 6, as it is talked about in the development of logic, verses 7 through 13. The first thing we say is that the new covenant is faultless. The new covenant is faultless. You'll see the word faultless, verse 7. You'll see the word fault, verse 8. Here's the logic. For if that first covenant, the covenant of the law, the covenant which required the blood of animals in sacrifice. If the first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. If the old covenant was as good as it could get, then there would be no need for God to talk about another covenant. It's pretty simple to understand. And then it says, verse 8, for finding fault with it. Is that what it says? Verse 8. For finding fault with it. Is that what it says? No, it says this. For finding fault with them. What was wrong with the old covenant? The people. Why doesn't the old covenant work? The people involved. And if all we do is preach the truth of the old covenant, we know something of the holiness of God. We know something of the expectation of God. We know something of the requirements of God. But we find in the law no power to live that way to God's pleasure. And so when the Bible tells you that 
Christ has obtained a much more excellent ministry as the mediator of a better covenant. You got that right. And established upon better promises. You got that right. Because ultimately, when you compare the law with the Lord, boy, the Lord wins every time. And so this is a passage that says again and again, it's the Lord, it's the Lord, it's the Lord. It's never been about the law. Not that the law is bad. In fact, as Paul says it, the law is holy. The law is good. The law is just. The law is revealing. The law is helpful. But the law doesn't have any power to help you keep it. And the new covenant has promises attached to it that absolutely guarantee the keeping of the holy standard of the Almighty. And so believe me when I say Jesus is better, 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 better. That old covenant is associated with faults. I like the statement of John MacArthur here. The old covenant was not faults, but it had faults. The old covenant was not faults, but it had faults. The scripture is careful to say that the law was not faulty, but that it failed because of the people factor. And that's exactly what we have shown you in recent weeks and will undoubtedly show you again in coming weeks from Romans chapter 8 with a statement that the law was made weak through the flesh. That what made the law ineffective, what made the law lack in power, was the human flesh that sought to embrace it. If you put a brand new battery into an old broken flashlight, it still will not work. The new battery simply works to reveal to you that that is not the problem. Likewise, in the case of the law, it simply reveals to us that it is not the problem. We are. The problem isn't with God's law. The problem is with us. And so the first thing we find out about the new covenant is it is faultless. Absolutely. 100% faultless in every way. Or, to say it otherwise, you have wrecked a lot of things in your life. In fact, you may well have wrecked your own life. But God has a repair for you. Wow, what a glorious thing we have to share with people if they'd only listen to what we have to say from the Word of God. Secondly, the New Covenant is of a different form or kind and is separated from the Old Covenant, verse 9. Not, it says, according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. Now, if you want to read about that, you go to Exodus 19, and you could read about the aspect of how God poises his covenant before the people under Moses. God's word said that the new covenant was not according to that old covenant he made with the Jewish fathers in that day long ago. 
The difference is in form or the nature of the covenant. The Old Testament law placed conditions of obedience upon the people for God's blessing and posterity. If they believed or if they behaved, uh, then uh, they would know God's uh, blessing. And so we would describe the Old Covenant as conditional. It was an if-then covenant. If the people obeyed God, then they would be blessed. And uh, therefore, the difference between the first and the second, between the old and the new, is thought by some to be that uh, the old focused more upon the external man and that the new focuses more upon the internal man. But that's not it. That's not it. For even the Ten Commandments include the command, Thou shalt not covet, which is clearly an internal standard. And then when Jesus preached the kingdom truths that we call the Sermon on the Mount, he made absolutely clear that the Old Testament law wasn't just external in emphasis, but indeed was a matter of the heart. Both the first and the second covenants deal with the righteousness of the whole man before God. The difference then cannot lie in the fact that the Old Testament deals with the external man and the New Covenant deals with the internal man. No. Both covenants deal with external and internal requirements before God. The difference is in the form of the New Testament. The New Covenant is unconditional. In that it depends, listen, it depends, listen, it depends solely upon the soul resolve of God, S-O-L-E, the soul resolve of God. If you're going to write anything down, write this down. The soul resolve of God. God said, I will make a new covenant with Israel and the house of Judah, and it's not going to be like the old one. The old one failed because of the people. The new covenant cannot fail because of people. The new covenant is predicated upon the soul resolve of God. The new covenant is grounded in the same way that God's soul resolve was seen in the promise made to Abraham. That's why when Paul picks up the pen to consider this same kind of contrast in the book of Galatians, he takes us back to the promise of Abraham and associates the New Testament believer with the faith of Abraham so that we can understand the unique way in which you and I uh, in Christ have connected to the soul resolve of God. The New Testament or the New Covenant is appropriated by faith, not in the sinful performance of man to obey. The New Covenant is construed upon the sinless performance of Christ and his sacrificial death and blood on our behalf, not upon the performance of the worshipers. Therefore, you and I are saved by the soul resolve of God. 
not of ourselves, not of our works, lest any of us should boast. Hey, I did it good. I lived righteously enough to be accepted by God. No, you did not. For by grace ye are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now the prediction and the promise of the new covenant, as quoted in our passage of scripture here, coming from Jeremiah 31, proves the inadequacy and the temporary nature of the Mosaic law. This passage does not teach that the law is in any form or shape bad. But it does teach that the Lord is better. One more time. In no way does Hebrews 8, 7 to 13 teach that the law was bad. But it surely does teach that the Lord is, hands down, better. Better in every way. That brings us to the third thing this morning, which is that the new covenant is likewise based upon God's creation of new hearts. And we get this from verses 10 and 11. For this is the covenant that I will make. Quoting Jeremiah 31, a covenant to be made with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds. Tremendous contrast. It's almost as if God said, I'm not going to take my finger and write these laws out on a stone. I'm going to put these laws right in Jewish people's minds. I'm going to write uh, these laws right on Jewish people's hearts. I will be to them a God. They shall be to me a people. Now that entire promise is made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah, unified Israel. That promise is made to Israel. God promised to act, to place within his ethnic people a right mind and heart as the operational basis for this new covenant, which is a new covenant in his blood, his blood, Christ's blood. God's I will involves a new man created in Christ Jesus in righteousness and true holiness. Therefore, the challenge before the people in Christ on earth, whether they be Jews or whether they be Gentiles, is, quote, put off the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new man, which after God is created. It's one of the reasons why I don't like the section of the hymn book called aspiration. And it's not just because it reminds me of the word perspiration. Perspiration stinks. 
But that hymn book has a whole section of songs in it called Aspiration. Like, I wish, I hope to live in such a way. That is not the posture of a believer. You are not, as an unholy person, told that you have to be holy. You are told as a holy person in Christ to live holy. There's a difference. One, I am aspiring to be something that I'm not. In the other sense, I am simply faithfully being and doing that which I actually am. I have said to many of God's people with a clear testimony of faith in Christ, you are a prince. You are a princess. You start living that way. You can't pull a Harry. You can't pull a Harry and beg off royal duties. You can't pull a Harry. You can't be Harry. First of all, none of us are British here. But you can't be Harry. Because as a blood-bought child of God, you can't beg off from the life of the king and his family forever and ever and ever. You must exercise your will to live as you have been called in Christ Jesus. That is the appeal of the Christian life, and there is none other. Now, while this covenant as are all biblical covenants directed towards Israel, it is quite amazing to think that right now, right now, in this moment of time in which we live, more Gentile people are enjoying the benefits of the new covenant than are Jewish people. But we need to be, remem- we need to be reminded that Scripture says, quote, all Israel will be saved. And that does not mean that every Jewish person that has ever lived or is living will be saved, but it does mean that the current blindness of Israel only remains on planet Earth until, quote, the fullness of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Romans 11.25 The future indeed includes a saved nation of Jewish people created by God's sole resolve to give them new righteous minds and hearts. The church does not replace nor negate God's promise and covenant with the house of Israel. But the church enjoys the promised blessings of the new covenant in Christ positionally, right here and now. Thus we read in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Or, as Spurgeon's little poem has it, near to the heart of God, Nearer I cannot be, for in the person of his Son, I'm just as near as he.
Christ is my standing before God. Christ is your standing before God as one that has expressed your faith in God the Son. In Bible overview, we see and are instructed of eight different named covenants between God and man. Some of those covenants are conditioned upon human response, and some of those covenants are unconditioned or unconditional, and thereby based upon God's soul resolve and provision. But all eight of the covenants point to the blessedness of Jesus Christ as to his person or to his work in terms of prophet and priest and king. And obviously, Hebrews 7, Hebrews 8, Hebrews 9, Hebrews 10, focus upon the priestly superiority of Jesus Christ our Lord. His priestly work operates on the basis of God's soul resolve and provision to us in Christ in the blood that he did shed at the cross and the life which he now lives before the throne. He is the provision of God for us. He is our great high priest. His ministry of mediation is unsurpassed. Much more to say about the new covenant and the blood of it next week, and significantly, even as we return to the table of the Lord. But in the meantime, you and I ought to order our minds as we order our mouths to focus upon the Lord Jesus. Father, how we thank you for our Savior. How we thank you for what we have because of him. How we praise you and adore you and lay our lives before you because of the marvelous grace received in the gift that is unspeakable and incomprehensible, but nonetheless true, the gift of Christ. O oh Lord, may our better understanding of it today and in coming days stir the fires of our devotion to live in a way that is pleasing to you, our God, to live in the light of being a holy people and you being our holy God. Thank you. Help us. Strengthen us, we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.